This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And here is everything that I know about today's chit-chat. Nothing. Because Taylor said, I'm going to tell a story, and I don't want to tell you first. (laughs) So we'll all be listening to this story together for the first time. I was like, I want you to experience it at the same time as everybody else. So, um, one of the things that I got done in all my many to do cleaning, whatever, is I had trimmed some tree wrenches and I have this pile that, that stuff goes, it just, it stacks up. And then when that pile gets big enough, I'll burn it. Anything that I don't put in a, um, like a compost. I also have this massive compost pile of like leaves and whatever, but like big tree branches and stuff will burn. And so the the place that I had been cutting these branches, it it was a little bit of a haul. So I had to do it in two stages. So I threw them over the fence and I was like, okay, I'll get to them when I get to them. At least they're not in my way. So a few days later, I went back to haul the branches and it was like in between things. Like I'm, I'm going to go do this. I've got 10 minutes, let me just get these out, out of the way and get them on burn pan. So I'm hauling the branches. I'm just, I don't have gloves on or anything, just barehanded because I'm just going to grab them. The way that I, when they're all piled up on top of each other like that, I'll find like two or three good size stick parts and I'll just drag those. And so all the little things just kind of come along with them. And sometimes the, the ones that I grab are you know, small enough that I can just carry them and it saves from things getting pulled off along the way. Fewer trips, right? So I'll just lift it in the air and and haul it off and then throw it, you know, leaves first onto the burn pile and go back for the next trip. And so, you know, I'm just doing my thing. And finally got to the last pile and uh, and I pick them up and I'm carrying them and I, I feel a weight drop off, which often happens like because the leaves are holding up other branches that are all sort of tangled in there. So I feel this weight drop off. So I lean down, I look around to see where's the branch that I dropped and there's no branch. What there is, is a six foot snake at my feet. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, ah! <laughs> and jumped about two feet back. And uh, I mean, the weight that fell off was like, I lost a big branch, right? And I just just stood there and the little, this, it had to be, you know, six feet easily, just slid off, fat, fat guy. And, and you know, okay, I saw where he went and I went off and I dumped my branches. And I, I'm not so good on snake recognition to know what kind of snake it was, but I know what it wasn't. It wasn't a copperhead <laughs> and it wasn't, far, it wasn't close enough to any water to have been a water moccasin. And those are the two that I really have to worry about around here. I've never seen a rattlesnake. So I'm not worried about those. Those are the two venomous ones. Anything else is 
fine. Like it's going to kill rats and mice. So I was like, I'm, I'm doing better. <laughs> I'm doing better. And I'm, I'm pretty freaking sure that this is the same <laughs> snake that was underneath that tarp. When I left the tarp up, it just, he's grown a foot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was, that was an experience. And so for the next uh, couple of days, like everywhere I went, I'm just like, watching my feet and super mindful because there's all kinds of just, you know, fall. There's lots of trees. So there's lots of always fallen limbs, small ones, you know, on the ground. There's, there's never a day when there's not some sticks lying around. And every once in a while, those sticks have like, like um, moss or mold or some kind of markings on them. It looks awfully snake-like <laughs> out, out of the corner of your eye. So the next few days I was a little twitchy <laughs> Just every stick was another snake, but I'm over it. And he's somewhere in one of the gardens, you know, the one that's kind of gone to seed. So I'm like, right, you can live there. Kill, kill the mice and the rats, and, and we're good. Just don't scare me again like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was good that you didn't tell me that story ahead of time. I am not <clears throat> a snake person, and I'd have been tuning out the story. <laughs> I am I'm not a snake person either, but um, I'm learning. You know, I don't like killing anything except like flies and mosquitoes and roaches uh, that doesn't need to be killed. Like, okay, rats too. But the other day I was in the shed and I saw this little tiny field mouse. It, it was like maybe two inches. And I was like, uh, you're cute. You can live. <laughs> I'm not going to go after you. <laughs> oh my gosh. The life of a farm but, family. Oh. But the, the, um, the snakes, they really do serve a purpose, you know? So I, and I, I just feel bad. I feel bad. I, I, I feel bad having to kill squirrels too. And it just, it, it, sometimes it has to be done, but I don't like it. And so if he's not, the snake's not doing anything, not hurting anybody. It can't just because it scared me kill. I don't like killing spiders either. They serve a purpose too, but some people really hate spiders and to them the only spiders, the only good spider is a dead spider. And I know people feel that way about snakes too, but I'm learning, you know, and, and over time I become more and more desensitized where it doesn't bother me as much, but that was a little bit of a jump scare. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Understandable. So today's episode, as you probably have seen from looking at the title on your podcast player is keeping track of the details. So what are we keeping track of today, Taylor? Well, these questions came to me from the Facebook group uh, uh, from Mindy, and we've had questions from her, material from her before, and I have to give a big shout out to Mindy because she also just volunteered to be uh, part of the audio project. Oh, yeah, and Mindy. again, we need, we need more volunteers, so I just want to say thank you so, so much. Um, but anyway, these are all sort of organizational type questions, and I thought they were really good. They fall, would fall under what I would categorize as process. Like, they're not, you know, story or writing they, or about the industry. They're process questions. And so um, I'm going to break them down and cover them. I think we've got five of them. We're going to cover them one by one. And these are my answers for me personally, which is what I've been asked to talk about. I'm, I'm sure other authors have their own way of doing things and everybody's going to have to have find their own way that works but i was asked about mine so here we go the first question is this how and where do you keep your series notes from the research tidbits to the actual details that make it into a book and 
you're going to hate this answer. <laughs> it's that I really don't. Every once in a while, I will come across an article because a lot of what I pull from is n- news. It's where I get a lot of my quote unquote research. I will come across an article that has terminology or ideas in it that I need and I'm afraid that that I might not be able to remember. And so I will actually print those out. I feel that printing them out provides me a better record than um, like just saving them as a file because I work better with tactile uh, information, like the tactile experience. So I'll keep those in a file folder with the book's title on it. Uh, To this day, I think I've maybe only gone back and referenced something once or twice, but I still feel better having that just in case. Another thing I will do is, well, it depends. If I've read it on my phone, where I do read a lot of news, I'll screenshot pertinent pieces and I just keep those in a photo file. And if I am like, what, what was the exact word they used to describe that particular department of whatever, then I'll, I'll have that there. But again, I very rarely go back and, and, and use that. And then um, if it's uh, something that I've seen on while I'm on my computer, my where I write, I will sometimes copy phraseology or I, uh, concepts into my working document. And I will bracket them so that it's very clear to me. And I will notate the source so it's very clear to me that it's not mine, <laughs> not my work. And I don't accidentally plagiarize somebody. Um, and so they're in there. If it, if it was worthwhile enough for me to, to want to incorporate those ideas, I will put them into my actual working document. So they're right there. And I can see how they would fit into the story that I'm writing. And then I make sure to delete them out of the originals out um, so that I'm not plagiarizing anybody. Uh, So that's, that's kind of how I keep the research aspects of it. Uh, I guess you you say organized, but unfortunately most of it's inside my head and what'll end up happening is I'll have remember like, Oh, I remember this detail what's the exact wording or what's the the exact numbers or whatever, and I'll have to Google for it. And frustratingly, sometimes whatever, wherever it was that I originally found it, I can't find it again. So I'll find something similar and it wastes a lot of time and it's very stupid. So <laughs> um, I think probably if I was a little more organized or if I haven't always been able to really lie on my memory the way that I have, have I would create a, a, a supplemental file, like a side-by-side file, and I would give t- topics like, uh, let's say I was looking for a city, you know, like let's say I'm researching Odessa. So I would give it the, the he- topic heading Odessa, and then I would copy the links of the things I was finding into that and just put a small little note, um, you know, good description of the city. Uh, point of view from somebody who who lived there for three years or something like that so that I wouldn't have to actually click the links to find the material in them. I would just know. And then whatever I was looking for in my mind, I would go, okay, it's right there. That that's what I would do if I was a little more organized. So so, 
that's the research tidbits side of it. The second question is how do you personally keep all the facts straight between books? Um, this is memory again. Um, when I'm thinking about my books, I, I don't really know that there are that many facts that I have to keep straight book to book because every book kind of has its own topic. So I'm not carrying things over. The things that do carry over are the characters' histories and their relationships and their interactions or things that they've said to each other. But that is kind of just imprinted on me, maybe not word for word, but I spend so much time on one book that by the time I'm through with it, I might not remember, you know, all the the intricacies of some everything going on in it, but I will remember the major points and I will remember more or less where to find them. So if when I get into a next book, something similar or re related comes up, I know where to go look to make sure I've, I've got that right. Uh, usually I can remember a keyword or something happening in the general vicinity of when that was said or done that I can just do a search term for and search through my documents and find it. I won't, I don't have the, um, uh, the final finals because that's all done at the publishers, but I have the, the final submission that I submitted to the publisher, which is pre copy edit. So if it's something that I need to get exact, once I have found it in my, draft my final draft and I know what's going on with it, then I know like more or less where in the story it is. I will go pull an actual book and look for it in there and get the exact like down to the correct punctuation and everything. But it's really rare that that has to happen. So I don't know like everything else though regarding their relationships and how they look and how they behave and everything that's just kind of imprinted on me. So it's never really come become a question of getting, of forgetting. If I had 20 books under my belt instead of eight and a half or wherever I'm at now, um, it might be different. If I had, if I was a little older and my memory was starting to go, which I might borderline be there already. I don't know. Um, it might be a little different. I mean, I did get a taste of that with my brain breaking where I just couldn't, I didn't have the same recall for things, but it wasn't really with book stuff. It was more short term memory was gone. And I, I could remember things that had happened before, but I always know where to look. So I haven't really had to have any sort of system for keeping things straight. Now, with all of that said, I probably just set myself up for a big time failure and people are going to start pointing out inconsistencies or something that I didn't know I was doing wrong. But more or less, that's, that's how it's been. The next question is, how, how do you avoid repeating the same descriptions over and over between books? For example, you need to describe a protagonist in book seven for new readers but keep old readers from skimming too much. Now, this one is a huge challenge for me. 
because there are some aspects of Monroe that have to be repeated every book. We need to know generally her skill set. That's really important. And we need to know well, we need to know about the languages. That that's impossible. You can't get around. And we need to know about the knives. And we need to know where she's from. And these are all things that have to be encapsulated in very small bits and bites. Because if you go too far into it, it's boring for, uh, you know, series readers. And there are really only so many ways you can say the same thing over and over and over again. So coming up with creative ways to articulate the same thing is very, very challenging. I don't deal with that so much when it comes to the characters' descriptions, because I don't spend a lot of time generally describing characters. From Monroe, if you go through all of the stories, only once have I described the color of her eyes. That was in The Informationist. Um, her height, she's five foot ten, is usually, it never, but never, only in a couple of the stories does it ever actually flat out say she's five foot ten. Most of the time, her height is described in relation to other things. So if the guy standing next to her is six foot and she's wearing heels, then it'd be, you know, with heels, she was almost his height. That type of a third, they would put them at the same height, that type of a thing. Um, we know that she's got a long, lean body and we know that she doesn't have a big, doesn't have big boobs because she hides those. Right. But other than that, really haven't gone into a lot of detail about how she looks, um, with Bradford and Logan, we, they've each had the color of their hair described, the color of their eyes, um, height just generally. So there's really not a lot of description. And so with those, with this description of how the characters look, it's easier to slip that in because, you know, you can relate it to something else that's going on at the time. Um, like in the, the draft that I'm working on now for the fulcrum, the way that I showed Logan's like hair color, for example, was part of the action when Monroe is looking him over, she's looking at his scars. And the scars are something that occurred in book three. But because they pertain to the plot, sort of, kind of, they 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 do the, the plot. It's connected in a t- tangential sort of way. When she looks him over and she's looking at the scars, it describes them as starting the, the ones on his head start behind the hairline between the blonde strands and track down the left side of his face. So without saying he has blonde hair, I just said he had blonde hair. And it's the same way of saying that Logan is gay. And I don't ever come out and say that he's gay. I just say that he's had a string of series of boyfriends over the years. Right. So it's, it's a way it's kind of a, a thing of saying the thing without saying the thing. And that's how the description of the characters is done. But in terms of Monroe's past and Monroe's skill set, or sometimes her connection to the the two men who are the two male characters, sometimes I deliberately do use the same language. Um, I use for describing Logan, 
the the term star crossed only multiple times, but because it's so quick and it's fit in with other things, it doesn't feel repetitive or like a copy paste because the the verbiage around it changes and is usually situational to somehow relates to what's going on inside the story at that time. And so that part is a little easier uh, than just straight up trying to fit Monroe's history into a paragraph or two. Now, with that that part of it, the cha- the most challenging part of it, which is bringing in the knives, bringing in the the languages and all of that, I'm always going to try to do it in some way that directly connects to something that's going on in the plot in the moment so that it's not just a retelling of whatever's been said before. But coming up with new ways to say it, I will go and find the ways I've said things before and copy them all into a single, like, one page of whatever. I might be like, title it like Monroe's Nightmares uh, and, and Slash Insomnia, Monroe's Knives, uh, the, the Bloodlust or whatever. And I'll find different ways that I've said it before and I'll put them all together and then look at those and go, okay, how can I restructure some of this and say, without having to reinvent the wheel, how can I describe it in a way that integrates with the story right here and now, not the past. And I'll take choice words or choice phrases and and I will blend them with other choice phrases. So it's not the same thing because it's being said differently, but it's the same ideas. And then I'll just work it over. And I spend a lot of time on those particular paragraphs or sentences because they're so important. It's important to get them right. And it's important that, so it's important to get them right in terms of the past so that you're not retrofitting the current book to the the old books and fit the new one or whatever, but also that it actually feels right in the moment that it's being said. And it's not just sort of info dumpy and here's some stuff you need to know. And so like, um, let's say in the, the draft that's up there right now on Patreon. If you're a patron, you can go and you can see what I'm talking about. Um, if you're not a patron, $3 pledge will get you this thing. So, you know, if it's worth it probably for just the teaching that's in it as you watch me go through these drafts and watch what changes. Um, so right now there's a scene that takes place uh, in bathroom where Monroe's basically being strip searched. And in that scene... The person who is is responsible for this has a reaction to seeing the scars. And Monroe realizes in that moment that this woman doesn't know about the scars. And so that right there is a launch point that takes us into what it means, the fact that this person who is has control of her physical body and Monroe's basically her captive, um, what it means that this person who knows everything else about her doesn't know about scars. And it, it becomes a launch point for talking about where they came from. And so it, it gives you 
that glimpse into her past in a way that doesn't feel like a repeat, even even if, and I don't, but even if I use the exact same terminology that had been used in the previous book to describe any of that, it wouldn't feel like it because it is completely new as far as the story around it. So it, it is pertinent to the story. It's emotionally connected. It's logically connected. And it's all part of what's happening in the moment. You don't feel like you've heard it a hundred times before. And for, for a reader who has heard it in every single book up until that point, it's still new, but it's new in a way of like, yeah, I got the inside story. I know the real history here. What's on the page is just a little tiny bit. So you feel like an insider, right? And so that's an example of how I would take a piece of information that has to show up in every single book and make it feel like it's interesting and that you haven't heard it a million times before. And then I've got to do that with the knives and I've got to do that with her languages. (laughs) So it is tedious and frustrating, but it's part of the process. So the next question is, given your intricate plot lines and outlining ahead of time, have you ever during first drafting gotten sidelined and changed the rest of your story or the ending? And if so, did you toss the outline or redo it? I don't really have a clear yes or no answer to this because, um, well, I mean, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you you know that with the first Jack and Jill story, Liar's Paradox, I like totally trashed it and redid it. And the only thing that I kept was the opening sequence and a little tiny bit of material and the, the concept of the, the feuding twins and everything else got tossed. And But that was because my outlines are really not that super well-developed and my rough drafts are really not that super well-developed. It's very sparse. I, I, I recently happened across some old material for the fulcrum that, uh, I guess was in a separate cut file or cause I, I, when I cut huge chunks out, I save them cause I never know if I'm going to need them again. And I can always go back and look And this cut file. It, it's been so long and and the material was just so rough at the time that I didn't even remember it. And I, I read over some of the earlier drafts of, of this one particular scene. And it's a scene that I had just, it was like one of the final scenes. No, it's a scene that I'm about to write now as I'm going back into this again. Um, and it's completely different. Like it, that, that's why it's in the trash is because it, the story had changed so much. So yes, it does happen, but it happens as I go. So it's not like I'm aware like, oh, hey, I I just tossed this whole outline and now I'm redoing it. If that ever happened, it would have to happen before I actually started writing the book. And in the case of that first liar's story, I think I'd gotten maybe five chapters of rough draft into it. And then I was like, it just wasn't working. And so I scrapped it. But it's because I, I really didn't have the whole outline. I didn't know the story. I was just kind of throwing mud at a wall, trying to see what sticks. So if I'm in that that stage of just throwing mud at a wall, yeah, I will end up having to get rid of it often. But not because I got sidelined from it, but because I was able to come up with something better, something deeper, something richer, more suspenseful, 
smarter. A lot of times my rough draft material is just really dumb because the stuff that's in there is placeholder. It's, it's there to sort of, I, okay. The material that I just found in this cut file, it's supposed to be where Monroe is being chased uh, by, by people who are not letting her, she needs to get somewhere alone. And, and these people are not going to let ever let her have a moment's rest. And so in the, the cut file that she's being, um, she's, it's on foot, like someone pops out of the shadows and, you know, there's like a physical confrontation or whatever. Well, many, many, many iterations later, uh, it's completely different. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because, you know, spoilers, but it's just not the same. And when I read those ideas, I'm just like snort laughing, like, oh my God, that's so bad. But that's how it starts. It always starts like that, where it's just bad. And then it's, it's got, something's got to be there. And then as through the writing process and through thinking about it and deepening, enriching the plot as I go, that stuff gets weeded out. And I'm always looking to get rid of the dumb. Really, honestly, that's kind of how it is. How do I make this not dumb? So the the plot lines, there's a certain level of complexity that absolutely does exist in the outlining. That was very true of, well, some of them are more complex than others, but Liar's Legacy, the second Jack and Jill, is the most complex story I've, I've ever done, and I never want to do one more complex than that. It was just, that was just awful. Uh, a lot of them are not that complex. What It just looks like that in, in retrospect because you've got the start point and the end point and lots of twists and turns in between. So to everybody who's looking at it, it looks like one of those mazes where you kind of got to find your way through, you know, you start up in the left-hand corner and you got to find your way down to the bottom right-hand corner. And that's what it looks like. But me, I'm the one who wrote the maze. So I draw the path first and then draw in all the false starts and everything after that. Right. So it, the, the outlining is really just making sure that the plot holds together, the motives, why they're doing this, what is driving this, what that. And so that doesn't really change so much liars, legacy, liars, paradox accepted because I just didn't, you know, I was just throwing mud at a wall with that one. Um, it doesn't really change that much along the way. So the entire story itself typically will still hold. It's just all the details inside it. Those are the ones that might get trashed or rewritten or whatever. As far as changing the story's ending, I don't really think that's ever happened because the ending is so much a part of the beginning. So it's like if in in the outlining process, I've got to know how, where I'm going, right? That's what the whole process is about is to get to the end. I've never gotten there and thought, oh, this would be a a better ending. But it's not like that ending is scripted out in advance. It's more like, I just know that these are the people who are still alive and this is where they ended up more or less. And this is what comes next. And so the details might change in the ending as I'm trying to close it out in a way that it feels satisfying and, and you, you don't get there and go, really, that's it. Or it just drops off. But at least I know who's going to be le- dead, who's going to be alive. Oh, I take that back. 
with the mask. That was one ending that did change. And that was because I ended the story where I thought it should end originally. But in the process of writing and developing the plot to where it was what it was, there were certain characters who played a bigger role in things that had happened that than I had originally anticipated. And so my editor was like, I don't think we're going to, readers are going to be satisfied if they don't have this closure with this other guy. So I added on chapters after the ending to provide that sense of closure. That one did change, but it wasn't that it really changed. It just, we got to see it in real time instead of, um, instead of it just being alluded to. So that, that was the difference. So, but, but, you know, that's because this is my process of how I outline, how I rough draft, how I first draft. It would be really different if my outlines were like this really detailed thing, then they probably wouldn't change at all because I'd be following this path. Or if I didn't outline. Now with the informationist, I didn't outline. And in that case, um, it was just by the seat of my pants. And in the story that I'm writing now, the fulcrum, even though I had half of an outline, I, I, I got to the middle of it where the story just dropped off, but I didn't know it did because, you know, it's been so long since I'd seen the material uh, there was no second half of the story and I had to pull that together. And for a while, I didn't know that I could because of the way that I'd written the story up to that point, it no longer made sense anymore, according to what the general idea of what the original was. And so I had to go completely go back and try and build out a second half of the outline so that it would fit what currently existed. And thank God, it just kind of came to me in a flash. So that did happen too. But it wasn't so much a case of tossing the outline or redoing it. It was like, it wasn't there. And I'd already written half the book. So I go, crap, what do I do? So that that was a little bit scary, but that that got sorted out. So the fifth question here is, have you ever changed the real villain was partway through drafting or revising? And the only time this has happened to me was with the informationist because it was a seat of the pants uh, organic process and I didn't know who the villain was and and it it kind of cracks me up sometimes and I know I've talked about this before where readers will be like oh well I figured out who the bad guy was halfway through the story and I'm like well good for you <laughs> you're one step ahead of me because I didn't figure it out until the end um <laughs> so in that case I just really honestly didn't know I was just kind of sort of making up the story as I went and so that's why that Thankfully, okay, I've gone back and read the information since, and it does hold together. Yay for editors. But it probably would have been a much stronger story plot-wise if I had thought through everything from the beginning. I would have been able to make sure the correct red herrings were there, uh, make Monroe seem smarter. Just what It would have been better if I had known who the real villain was from the get-go. But I didn't. And so... It really was a case for me of, well, who did this and why? And then trying to make sure that it, it held together. And uh, zero ten, do not recommend. <laughs> I mean, for some types of books, yes. 
But for one that's very intricate and, you know, I, I just, no, I wouldn't. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other case. Now, every other story I've written, I've had to know the motives. I've had to know who the bad guy was and why for all the rest of the details to hold together. Otherwise, it's just too much that wouldn't make sense. And I have learned, don't just throw out, um, ex- how do I put this, like death or jump scares or something bad happening to the character because it's exciting and then figure out who did it or why later. That's just going to be a messed up writing process. You've got to know the who and the why first, and then you can write those bad things happening to, you know, create that tension or that conflict once you know, and then it'll work. Don't do it the other way around. At least me. I don't do it the other way around. So I think that's the end of the questions. I think I've answered them. Did I miss anything, Steve? Is there something that you maybe wish I had clarified more? No, I, in in fact, uh, in in the last question, I was, I was just sitting here puzzling over some things that um, that I mistakes that I'd made early on, and um, thinking, "Wow, I wish <laughs> wish we'd recorded this two years ago." I there are parts when I went back and I read the information. Is there are parts specifically I know happened in the story that at the time I was like, "I need something exciting to happen here," and I put it in but I didn't know at the time like who was behind it. And uh, I, I wish I hadn't, <laughs> I really wish I had known who, why, what, where, when first. And so that was one of the things that um, e- even all the way back then, after that process was finished, it was stuck with me. Don't do this. And it, it, it happened because those were the types of books I was reading. And these exciting things kept happening in the books that I was reading. So I thought that's what I needed to do. But having never been an author before, I didn't realize that the authors who were writing those things already had an idea of how they tied in first. (laughs) So I kind of came at it backwards. All right. So we are at the end of this week's program. So uh, thank you, Mindy, for the questions. Thank you, Taylor, for the answers, and we will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys, and we'll see you next week.